um, we thought about Jesus' view of Scripture. Um, how did Jesus Christ view the Bible? And knowing that whatever, I mean, we're Christians, so knowing whatever posture he had towards Scripture makes logical sense. That ought to be ours, too. We're his followers. And then a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, um, that what we read in the Bible, the words that we read, aren't merely the words of men. They are words of men, Peter, Paul, John, etc. But they're not merely words of men, but they are the words of God given through the work of men, right? To such a degree that we can say what Scripture says, God says, okay? That's a good way to think about it. What Scripture says, God says. And we talked a little bit about the nature of inspiration, how how that because it was given, because God didn't just drop this book out of the sky, but that he, he um, some of it's still a mystery to us how he did it, but, but that he spoke through men, through, through men who had different personalities and particulars about them, um, that Scripture brings that out. John doesn't sound like Paul. Uh, neither of them sound like Peter or James or Moses or David. But even with all of that, because it was God who was sovereignly ensuring that what they wrote, flavored as it was by their own personalities and particulars, it was nevertheless just what God desired and willed to be written. Okay? Men wrote freely, right? I don't think, I don't think Paul was sitting there going, oh, that's not what I want to write, but he's still writing it. He felt like he was writing freely, and yet God's word was written. That's what it was like. That's the product. Well, tonight, we began working out some of the, the corollaries to that doctrine, meaning some truths that flow out of that one. Inspiration is bedrock. Revelation is bedrock. Inspiration is bedrock. Now we're starting to build on the foundation. And, uh, and the, what we're going to talk about are, are things that flow out, not just logically. They do flow out logically, what we're going to talk, talk about tonight, but also because they themselves are demonstrated to be true in Scripture. Um, but still, because inspiration is true first. So for the next two weeks, tonight and then next Wednesday night, um, we're going to think about two of those doctrines, two of those corollaries that flow out of inspiration that really flesh out what we might call the truthfulness or the trustworthiness of Scripture. Um, uh, because Scripture is the inspired Word of God, it is also true. It's also trustworthy, Right? And the two doctrines that we're going to consider this week and next around that theme of the truthfulness of Scripture are the doctrines of inerrancy. That's tonight. Inerrancy. I-N-E-R-R-A-N-C-Y. Inerrancy. Uh, the inerrancy of Scripture. And then next week, the infallibility of Scripture. Okay? Inerrant tonight, infallible next week. And in many, in many ways, those two, those two doctrines do overlap a little bit in meaning but they are distinct from each other, and therefore each one deserves its own week. Inerrancy means just what it says. It, it, it means there are no errors in it. Like, Scripture does not err. That's what inerrancy is. Infallibility is a little stronger than that. Um, teaching Infallibility teaches not just that Scripture does not err, but that it cannot. It cannot err. It cannot fail. It's not fallible in any way. And you can see how both of those doctrines really flesh out the specific ways that we mean when we talk about the truthfulness or, or the trustworthiness of Scripture. It doesn't err, and it cannot fail. It cannot err. 
Um, so tonight we're going to talk a little bit about the inerrancy of Scripture, which is a really important doctrine, some reasons for which I hope we'll understand by the time we're finished tonight. The inerrancy is one of those things that needs carefully defining, though, so I hope we'll do, we'll do that a little bit later on and think about it carefully. Now, one more bit of prelude before we go to the Scriptures. Obviously, inerrancy is not a word you find in the Bible. Um, it's a humanly contrived word. Um, that tries to capture faithfully what we believe the Bible to teach. It's, in many ways, it's like the word Trinity, also not in the Bible, humanly contrived word, um, but it's a word that tries faithfully to capture what is very clearly the case to be in the Bible, right? And inerrancy is like that. So to that end, I've asked you to open to John 17. We're going to start with, uh, with just, uh, we'll read a, a, a few verses to lead up to it, but we're going to start out with just focusing on one verse in particular. Um, it's one that we've already made reference to a number of times in this study, but still a good place to start tonight. So if you found John 17, look with me beginning in verse 13, and we'll read through verse 17, which will be our focal verse to begin. Beginning in verse 13, Jesus said, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray. Lord, agreeing with Jesus, we say, we believe your word is your holy, inspired, inerrant infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. That passage we just read, every other passage we will read tonight. And so as we think about this doctrine that you have, you have given to us in, the, in, in your word, Lord, would you give us minds to think about it clearly, eyes to see it, minds to think about it very clearly uh, and understand it, hearts then to embrace what it is you've, you've taught us here wills to to carry out and live according to what you've taught us here put it into practice whatever that looks like give me the help that i need to teach please give us ears to hear ask in jesus name amen okay like i said it's 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 that that's verse 17 it's one we've mentioned a number of times but for good reason jesus teaches a good a good bit about the nature of scripture in just a few words there and in this case it it really succinctly shows us how the doctrines of inerrancy and infallibility flow out of the doctrine of inspiration. Um, because, look, if you're looking at verse 17 again, you can see Jesus affirming inspiration when he says, your word. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word. And in the context, he's not just referring to the things that he's said to the disciples out of his mouth, person to person, but he's talking about the things that he said in chapter 16, things he would later bring to their remembrance for them to write down as Scripture. And he's affirming that what the apostles would say when they wrote that down is not, it's not just their word, it's your word, it's God's word. It's, it's, it's according to Jesus, that's what it is, inspired word. But then he, because he says, he says, because Scripture is your word, verse 17, what else does Jesus say about it as a consequence? It is truth. Your word is truth. And the way we're going to begin fleshing that out, the meaning of that tonight, is through the doctrine of inerrancy. 
So if you're taking notes, here's how I want us to think about this important doctrine. And we're just going to be hitting the high spots um, because there's a lot more detail we could give tonight that's helpful to know, like the history of this doctrine through the history of the church. But we're going to try to point out those most immediately important points about the doctrine. So if you have a good grasp of what it is, what it isn't, why it's important. So again, here's how I think we'll divide it up. First, we're going to think about scriptural support for the doctrine. Scriptural support for the doctrine. Where, where do we find it in the Bible? We want to begin there because, as I said, um, the, while the word inerrancy is not in the Bible, the concept is, okay? The doctrine is scriptural support. Second, we need to carefully consider the meaning of inerrancy. This is where I'm going to give you a, a careful, long definition of what we mean by inerrancy. That, that, that's a definition that's going to tell you very thoroughly what it is, but it's also phrase by phrase going to help guard against different misunderstandings of the doctrine. And then third, at the end, I just want to note the importance of the doctrine, which by the time we get to that, hopefully we'll already, that'll already be apparent to you, but we'll say a word about it anyway. So let's start at the beginning and consider some of the scriptural support for the doctrine of inerrancy before we define it. Um, since I've already noted several times that, that this doctrine of inerrancy flows out of the, the, the prior truth that Scripture is inspired, that what Scripture says God says, then it's appropriate to remember that that's something very important about God himself, right, that pertains to inerrancy. So you can either, I'm going to give you a lot of, you can either just jot these down or you can actually turn your Bible to these things. Some of them, it might be helpful to do that. Um, and here's something about God that is important to remember when we think about the doctrine of inerrancy. And that is this, God cannot lie or speak falsely. God cannot lie or speak falsely. That's just something about his nature. Um, one reference is 1 John 1, 5. 1 John 1, 5, this, 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 um, this verse doesn't pertain, it's just not talking about Scripture itself. It's talking about the God behind Scripture, okay? It's going to affect Scripture. And 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He is righteousness. It's not like there's this thing called righteousness that exists eternally, and God subscribes to that. It's that God is righteousness, Right? Any righteousness anywhere in the world flows out of him. He's the source of it. Right? If there was an, another thing out here called righteousness and God subscribed to that, then whatever that is is God. Right? He is righteousness. He is holiness. His being is perfection. Right? Um, that's also, by the way, true of the God-man, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.22 says of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He committed no sin, 1 Peter 2.22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. You think about other things that Jesus said. Jesus said famously, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Jesus had no deceit in his mouth. Where else did he have no deceit? In his heart, Right? Um, 
So quite naturally, that carries over then, if that's the nature of God, that's the nature of the God-man Jesus Christ, that carries over naturally into what Scripture says about His Word. God cannot lie or speak falsely. Two verses that declare that very thing, okay? God cannot lie or speak falsely. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. Hebrews 6, 18. Literally says, quote, unquote, it is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6.18. Or think Numbers, your favorite book, Numbers 23.19. N- numbers will surprise you. You think, Numbers? It's actually a page turner. Anyway, um, and while I'm near the, the topic, you probably think Leviticus. I suggest, if you, if some of you have been here for a long time, you know I'm, what I'm about to say. When you get to Leviticus in your, in your Bible reading plan, like, you're like, Genesis, you start January 1, you're like, Genesis, yes, that's awesome. Some weird stories, but it's awesome. Exodus, woo, that's awesome. You get to Leviticus, it's like, er, read it all in one sitting. Just boom, read, Exodus, read Leviticus. Eight. It's far richer than you ever thought it was. You, you, you read it all in one sitting. You start seeing repeated themes. You see repeated words. You see repeated phrases, repeated ideas. You spread that thing over, out over a month. You've forgotten by the end of the month what you read at the beginning of the book. So, anyway, why am I on that? Numbers 23.19. Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that he should lie or, the son of a, or a son of man that he should change his mind. That's directly comparing God to us. We lie. We change our minds. God, by contrast with us, does not. It's impossible for Him to. He is righteousness, perfection altogether. So having established that truth about God, then there are other passages in the Bible that that affirm these same kind of things just about His Word. Some of these, um, let's just turn to these if you want to. Consider Psalm 12.6. Some of these are going to be in the Psalms, so it would be easy to flip around to. Psalm chapter 12, verse 6. Psalm 12.6. And it says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. That, that, is, that's, that is, they're saying that the psalmist is saying, like, uh, what God has revealed to us has its root, I mean, it, just, it says, well, it's just giving us that, that imagery of like a, a, a furnace, like a, a, like a precious metal, a metal being purified, that every time that metal goes through the, the heating process, it, it burns and melts out more impurities out of that metal that's mixed with impurities. And every time it goes through the heat, it gets purer and purer and purer, and all the impurities melt its way out of it. And the Scripture is saying, 
When it says purified seven times, seven in the scripture is just talking about perfectly, completely, utterly. And it's saying the word of the Lord is as pure as the purest metal. It's just saying there is no mixture of any impurity in the word of God. That's what it's saying. Or if you're still in Psalms, flip over to Psalm 119. We're not going to flip around to scriptures all night long, I promise you. But we're going to start here. I'm going to give you a long definition that we'll work our way through. Psalm 119, verse 89. Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your word. This is his word, but he's saying it's fixed in the heavens. It's saying... What you read on this page has its roots and origins in heaven, in rooted in the perfection of God. This is the product of flowing out of perfect. It's here. Or just a few verses later in verse 96. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. And you might read that and go, I don't know, what in the world is that talking about? That that phrase, exceedingly broad, your commandment is exceedingly broad, verse 96, that, that phrase has this connotation. It's beyond full com- comprehension. It's beyond full comprehension. And so what is that verse saying? The psalmist is looking around at created things. He's looking around at earthly things. And he says there's a limit to, to the perfection of any of these earthly things. But when I consider the Word of God... And he considers the Word of God. He cannot fully comprehend the perfection of that. Like it is, it is unlike any other thing. It's just extolling the perfection of the Word of God. Okay, you, you keep flipping to Proverbs. It's right after the book of Psalms. We're getting close to the end. Proverbs 35, 30 verse 5. This is pretty simple. It says... Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Every word of God proves true. It's pretty simple. And we've already looked at it. We opened this time tonight. Our our, uh, scripture for a call to worship was Psalm 19. Listing all those, those, those characteristics of the word of God. It's pure, it's true, it enlightens the eyes. Makes wise the simple. It's all those, all those things. And we just said, Jesus said, your word is truth. But even beyond just those types of scriptures that just say things bluntly about the Bible, sometimes you see, you see the doctrines like inerrancy in the Bible, but you have to sneak around through the side to see it. Because it doesn't just come out and say it. But if you look under the hood a little bit, you see what they're doing. And it assumes it. So there are, and what I'm trying to say is this. Sometimes there are arguments that are made in Scripture. Arguments that are made. Arguments that Jesus makes when he's arguing with somebody. And the way he makes the argument presumes, assumes the inerrancy of Scripture. Let me just give you a few examples. Let me give you three kinds of examples here. There are arguments that rest on a single word. 
There are arguments in Scripture that rest on a single word. The clinching argument is, it comes down to a single word, meaning every word must be perfectly true, right? Let me give you the example. Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22, verses 43 and 44. Matthew 22. Yeah, these will be helpful to turn to. Matthew 22. I've just got three more passages, and then we'll, we'll get to the nitty-gritty. Matthew 23, verses 43 and 44. Did I? Oh, 22. I'm like, you don't even have that many verses. Matthew 22, verses 43 and 44. And this is when Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees about who is the Messiah, and, and Jesus is claiming to be divine here. And he says, to, he says to the Pharisees in verse 43, he said to them, how, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him, calls, it, calls the Messiah, Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. We don't have time to camp out there, but the, you can see right there, Jesus says, here's my argument. If you read Psalm 110, it says Lord. <laughs> it just comes down to one word. It didn't say anything. It didn't say he's important. He said he's Lord. And, and that word right there, it says Lord because God put it there. That's the end of the argument. Right? Or in that same chapter, sometimes, like I said, that comes down to, to a single word in the text. In that same chapter, Matthew 22 you see a whole argument resting on the tense of a verb. The tense of a verb. Like, if you're in Matthew 22, look back at verses 31 and 32. And this is Jesus arguing with the Sadducees. The Sadducees thought, when you died, that's it, it's over. Jesus is saying, no, there's life after death. There's a resurrection. And in Matthew 22, look back at verse 31 and 32, and he, and, and he says, as for the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Do you see how he's making that argument? If Jesus' conclusion is, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, what is the most important word to his argument in what came before it? Am. Am. Jesus is saying, Scripture is teaching resurrection and life after death because it says am. It doesn't say was. He does, Jesus say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's important because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were already dead when God said that. They were dead, buried in the ground. But God still doesn't say, I was their God. I am their God. They're still around. Tense of a verb. Present tense. One more example where we find an argument based on the minutest detail of Scripture. This is one where an argument is made based on whether a word was singular or plural. Okay? Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Like... No word in Scripture is by mistake or can 
err and lead you astray. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. And this is Paul talking about the promises that God made to Abraham. Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. Paul is showing how all of the promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ because it said offspring, not offsprings. Like, Jesus had utmost confidence in every, the truthfulness of every single word of Scripture. It, all those goes to show you why we believe, as we said a few weeks ago, in verbal, plenary inspiration. Verbal, every word, plenary, all of it. Inspiration. That each word and every word is given by inspiration of God, and because of that, each and every one of them is true and trustworthy. In tonight's case, inerrant. They do not err. They are right and true down to the word, down to the tense of a verb, down to the number, singular or plural. So we have ample scriptural support for the doctrine of inerrancy. And this isn't even all the, the biblical support we could have given, but it's enough to make the point. And this is something that's taught in scripture, and therefore we need to think about it carefully. And define it carefully, what it does mean, what it does not mean. So having seen this scriptural support, let's now begin the process of thinking about what is inerrancy. And I'm about to give you a definition that's long. I'm going to put it on the screen. How about them apples? Uh, put it on the screen, and we're just going to walk through this long definition. So there it is. Um, this... Uh, this is a really good definition. It's one that comes mostly from David Dockery in his book on Christian Scripture. I'm going to read it, and you're going to go, what in the world? And we're going to walk through it. When all the facts are known, the Bible in its original autographs, properly interpreted in light of which cultural, culture and communication means had developed by the time of its composition, will be shown to be completely true in all that it affirms to the degree of precision intended by the author in all matters relating to God and his creation. If you go to seminary, you get to think about this stuff all the time. It's awesome. You should go to seminary. I think this is an incredibly helpful definition. Not only does it define carefully what we mean by inerrancy, it also carefully defends against common misunderstandings of it. Okay, let's just think through it uh, and comment on some of those misunderstandings that it addresses. First, it says, when all the facts are known, when all the facts are known. And that's, that just, that's simply an acknowledgement that we are always learning more. We're always learning more, right? I don't claim to know everything. That doesn't mean I can't be sure about anything. I can be sure, but I'm always learning more. And here's the thing. What you find is, with archaeology, you find it with, with things like this. It seems like the more you learn, it's always in favor of inherency. Okay? And, and, and so, anyway, we saw that earlier. Uh, Psalm 119.96, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. It's beyond comprehension. So we're always learning more, but every advance in knowledge increasingly supports the doctrine of inerrancy. 
Okay. When all the facts are known, the Bible in its original autographs, you're like, what? What in the world does that mean? The original autographs simply means, it's simply referring to the actual documents that the biblical authors wrote. Okay? The actual thing. That's the original autograph. The original autograph is that actual piece of parchment or papyrus that Paul, in his prison cell, wrote down a letter on. You know? And sealed it up, put it in an envelope, send this to the churches of Galatia. That's the original autograph of his letter. It's the, it's the actual document that wrote, the, or, or the scroll that Moses wrote the books of Moses on. It's the, it's the, it's the first edition. That's the original autograph, written in the hand of the biblical author. <coughs> now, as soon as you say that, the Bible in its original autograph, the question naturally arises, do we have those? Do we have the Bible in its original autographs? And the answer is, no. Uh, no document lasts forever. Right? How many of you have been to, the, have been to Washington, D.C. and have gone to see the Declaration of Independence? Right? Um, can you read it clearly? No. It's basically all completely faded away. I'm like, cool, that's the actual document. Well, where are the words? They're gone. They faded away. You see some markings here or there. <clears throat> but do we doubt what the Declaration of Independence actually says? No. Why? Because for as long as the people had the original, they made copies. Copies were made. And same is true for the Bible. The, originals, the original autographs, the original thing that Paul wrote, Moses wrote, <coughs> they, they did exist for quite some time before they were finally unusable. Because, and that's not just true of the biblical materials, that's of any books. Because in that day, materials, parchments, papyrus, because materials like that were so scarce and so expensive, they took great care of those things to make sure they lasted as long as they could last. And estimates are that a book would be kept usable for 100 or 150 years. Okay. Um, we'll say more about this on the last week of the series when we talk about the transmission of the Bible. But it's necessary to say something about it here. It means that, realistically, people were making copies of the original autographs for 100 or 150 years, right? And they wanted, to, they wanted to copy it right because they had a lot of respect for what it said, right? Um, it means that people were making copies of those originals. It means that for 100 or 150 years, people were quoting them in ancient letters that we still have, or they were quoting them in ancient sermons that we still have. We have nearly 6,000 manuscripts or partial manuscripts of the Bible. 6,000. 
Do you know some of the other ancient, ancient, um, other ancient works, like Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, they only have like two. And the earliest one is like a thousand years after the fact. <clears throat> we, have, we have almost 6,000, some of which we do know are as early as 125, 150, 200. There's a couple of them that scholars do speculate that it's late first century. That means any of those, late first century, 125, 150, heck, even 200, any of those themselves could have been copies of the originals themselves because the originals would have still been in existence. But let me put it to you this way. We have over one million, one million um, quotations of Scripture from early church fathers in all their writings, in letters, in treatises, in sermons, so much so that we could essentially recreate an entire Bible just from those quotations, even if we didn't have any manuscripts whatsoever. It's a mind-blowing amount of evidence. And all of that evidence has been found archaeologically from all over the ancient Roman Empire, all over the Mediterranean world. Meaning, and there's unbelievable agreement among those things all over the Mediterranean Roman world. Um, and it means that through all of those manuscripts from all over the place, throughout time and treatises and sermons and letters, it means that even though we no longer have the actual original documents, um, what we do have is actually more guarded from suspicion than if we still had the originals. Why? How could that be? Because if we still had the, the originals, how easy would it be to make claims that those originals had been tampered with or corrupted in some way from what they originally said? But since you have it this way, you have copies and copies and copies and copies and copies all over the Roman Empire. We just thought about the Roman Empire, by the way. <laughs> you have copies and copies and copies all over the Roman Empire. It would have taken superhuman strength. It would take superhuman abilities, basically Santa Claus, to, to go around all over, the, the, all over to every nook and cranny of the Roman Empire and change every little thing about all of those documents to tamper with them, right? That's just, that's just bonkers. And so, in the way that we have it, not having the originals, God has preserved His Word in a more sure and secure way. But why does this definition feel like it has to say, in its original autographs? The Bible, in its original autographs. Why does it have to say it like that? Because it's, it is those words that were actually inspired and inerrant. Right? God, God moved on Paul, not on the guy who copied Paul. Does that make sense? Right? 
copies can make minor mistakes. Translations can make minor mistakes. Um, but there is an inerrant autographic text that forms the foundation. We'll say more about that later in this semester. But then the definition says, and this is, the, this is a long chunk, properly interpreted in light of which culture and communication means that had been developed by the time of its composition. That's a mouthful. It simply means, and if you think about it carefully, you, you'll see what it means is. It simply means we don't judge an ancient book based on our modern current standards. That's not fair. Right? That's not fair. Um, they weren't operating by our standards. They just didn't. They, di they didn't intend to meet our standards. And that doesn't imply error. Let me give you some examples. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't adhere to our modern conventions of biography. Right? And therefore, there is no error implied when they leave out huge chunks of Jesus' life. Or Mark tells the order of events this way, and Luke tells them in a different order. That's not an error. Because they were not concerned with chronology. They were making a different point. They were making a theological point. And Luke would say, if I arrange it this way, it makes my point. Right? Chronology is important to us, but it wasn't to them. It is a colossal case of missing the point if we judge it by our current standards. <clears throat> the point really means that it's important that we interpret the Bible on its own terms and then judge whether or not it's true. And uh, anyway, there's an, there's an important phrase in the next part of the definition that says, <clears throat> it will be shown to be completely true, and you might underline that last phrase, in all that it affirms. In all that it affirms. That's an important point because, for example, the words of Satan are recorded in Scripture. And Satan lies. Jesus said in John 8, 44, about Satan, he has nothing to do with the truth <coughs> because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The Bible has those lies. Every time Satan speaks in the Bible, lies. So how can you say the Bible's inerrant? Because it's got words in it that err. They're the words of Satan. Well, the Bible is not trying to put Satan words forward as true things. It's putting them forward and saying they are lies, which is true, right? It does not err. But then it says, to the degree of precision intended by the author. And that's similar to the point we made before. Treat the Bible as you wish to be treated. That's what we're trying to say. It uses round numbers. Jesus fed the 5,000. Really? Precisely 5,000. It wasn't 4,878. It wasn't 5,312. It was 5,000 on the nose. Okay. But... 
come on, man. He just said, man, there's about 5,000 people there. It, it paraphrases the words of somebody else, right? Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, spirit falls. They speak in tongues, and, they, and they're like, whoa, what's going on? They're drunk. And Peter stands up and says, we're not drunk, and he preaches a whole sermon. <laughs> but do you think that's his whole sermon right there? Do you think that's Peter's entire sermon there in Acts 2? No. It's a faithful summary of what he said. If you, if, if you should go home and somebody you know, like, man, I wish I had gone to CBS tonight. I didn't go to CBS tonight. What Kevin, what Kevin say? And you're like, oh, he, he said the Bible's inerrant, and it, that means it doesn't err. And he said infallible, uh, cannot err. You didn't tell him any of that stuff. Did you err? No. You faithfully, very succinctly, summarized what I said. Right? Um, that's what the Bible does all the time. The Bible uses, here's a big word for you, phenomenological language. You, like a phenomenon. Right? Phenomenological. In other words, we still do this all the time. The sun rose. It doesn't rise, but you don't want to say it the long, arduous way. The sun rose. You don't want to say it. You'd sound so stupid if you said, you know, the tilt of our earth at that time shed light on our particular region of the globe. I mean, this is like you wouldn't do that. The Bible uses metaphorical language. God is a rock. God has, his arm is not too short to save. He's got nostrils that smell incense, and yet he's a spirit. It's metaphor. Um, it uses exaggeration and hyperbole. Matthew 8, 34, and behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. Really? Every man, woman, child, sick and old and well and all together? No, hyperbole to make a point. whole city came out, man. Descriptions of the same events vary. Mark says three guys were there. Matthew says two. It doesn't mean that either one of them is in error. It's just what they remembered. And it doesn't mean that either is wrong. I mean, and in the case of the Gospels, have you ever thought about this? There are like different ways that the stories are told in the Gospels. Do you know that that actually strengthens the argument of the Gospels instead of like, making it more suspicious? How suspicious would it be if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote exactly the same thing? That'd be weird. I tell you this, y'all commit some crime and the police start calling you in there and y'all all very robotically say the exact same words of the account and they're going to be like, y'all are lying. Y'all got your stories together and concocted this thing and you're going to jail, right? They would say the same thing about the gospel writers, but the fact that they're basically telling the same story slightly differently enhances their credibility. And it ends in saying, in all matters relating to God and His creation. In other words, 
It's not intended to be a manual of science. It's not intended to be a manual of psychology. It intends to relate God to man and man to God. And it's true and trustworthy in all that it affirms. As the Baptist faith and message says, it is truth without any mixture of error. There's more that we could say, but we need to wind it down. Why is this important? Because it impacts your view of God. It, it impacts the confidence of your trustworthiness of God and what He said to you. And that's going to impact your growth and grace. That's going to impact your persevering to the end. Kevin DeYoung said, Inerrancy means the Word of God always stands over us and we should never stand over the Word of God. When we deny the complete trustworthiness of the Scriptures, then we are forced to accept one of two conclusions. Either Scripture is not all from God or God is not always dependable. To make either statement is a sub-Christian point of view. So Scripture is all from God and you can trust it because God is dependable.